philanthropy is itself an outgrowth of white supremacy and a reinforcing system of the diminishing returns of the capitalist systems we live in. Philanthropy would not need to exist if we didn't allow a capitalist system to give individuals the power to exploit land and people and amass so much wealth that they then get to benefit on their taxes by leveraging their influence and power again through the system of philanthropy. Welcome to the Emerging Strategy Podcast, hosted by the Emerging Strategy Ideation Institute. We are a collective of facilitators, mediators, trainers, and just curious human beings interested in how we get in right relationship with change. Today, I'll be guiding our interview. And I'm Sage, a facilitator, cultural strategist, and architect with Emerging Strategy Ideation Institute. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time or may have stumbled into this podcast, Emergent strategy is the way we generate and reshape complex systems and patterns with relatively simple interactions. And today's guest is Javier Torres Campos, Program Director of Thriving Cultures for the Certain Foundation and one of my favorite emergent strategists. Hi, Javier. Hey, Sage. I'm so excited to be here with you today. Thanks so much for inviting me. I'm so excited for this conversation. Um, as I was telling you, when we were thinking about who to talk to, having been in process with you over years, I was like, oh, from, from even my beginning to think about how emerging strategy lives in the cultural sector of, of the work that we do, um, you have always been right alongside. So I'm really excited for folks to get a fuller conversation with us about the relationship between merger strategy, culture, philanthropy, and the ways in which we reshape the world with a cultural lens. But before we get into all that, how are you doing today? I'm doing good. Um, as I started sharing a little bit before we started recording today, this was a rough weekend. And, um, and I think I'll just share that uh, even with the difficult things, um, these conversations and sharing space with you is always something that I look forward to. It's something that's healing and helpful. This weekend, uh, my brother who suffers from mental health challenges let his ex know that he was going to commit suicide and then disappeared. Um, and I spent the last 24 hours looking for my brother who lives in San Diego with the police, with his doctors and trying to find him. And I'm just grateful that last night we did find him and he is alive and he is now under medical care. Um, so just grateful that, um, you know, even from across the country, our connections and our relationships can help us solve some of these problems and challenges and show up for the people that we love. Mm -hmm. And thank you for sharing that and wishing all well for your brother and your family. And uh, many of us know what that's like. And uh, thank you for still taking the time out today to, to be with us as we talk about emerging strategy around what does it mean to be whole people? And, and engaged in, in a full life as we do our, our, our quote, people can't see my air quotes, our work in the world. <laughs> right, right. How are you doing? I am doing well. Thank you for asking. Um, I have been moving around a little bit traveling and that can be really um, 
anxiety raising in the midst of, mm-hmm. of the pandemic right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of rethinking about what, uh, what does migration look like? Very similar to what you're talking about. What does it mean to care for folks in different places when we can't necessarily physically be there in the moment? Um, and right. so I'm really leaning into uh, what I'm calling the cultural evolution moment that we're in right now and trying to see both in my personal life. What does that mean about how I um, show up for this, for the, the skills that I, I know we all have that we cannot see uh, and really begin to build muscles around activation uh, and the tangibility of the things that we cannot see and feeling those and activating those and using those to continue to build creation and continue to be interdependent and continue to care for each other and those that we love. It's a beautiful exploration. Thank you for asking. Of course. So one of the things um, that uh, I get excited about this podcast for is is talking with folks that like I see emergent strategy all inside of their work, inside how they're moving through the world. And sometimes folks see it. And sometimes some of the folks on the podcast are like, why'd you call me? You know? <laughs> and um, uh, so what I want to do is just start off with like a, just a quick reflection. And, and if you'll let me know if this feels resonant to you. So some of the principles uh, uh, and elements of uh, emergent strategy that I see you walking through the world with are sort of creating more possibility Um, And also what you pay attention to grows. I find that uh, you're not someone who wastes time paying attention to that which you don't want to grow, that you you really seem forward facing on where I have planted seed here and let me tend it. Does that feel resonant to you? Does that feel like like some of the things? And are there other other principles and elements you feel like you lean into as well? I have to say that those are the two, even as I was preparing for our conversation today and going back and reviewing emergent strategy as a text, those are the two that really have stuck out. I've always been a believer that uh, humans individually and collectively are incredibly powerful and that there's a socialization that we have garnered throughout our lives uh, that um, allows us, forces us, encourages us to forget. And the way that I've always described it is trying to bring it down to a basic laws of physics that we all learn in high school or college. We all know that if your hand is warm and my hand is cold and we hold hands, that your molecules are moving faster, mine are moving slower, they will find natural symbiosis. Um, and we, you can warm my hands up by touching me physically. I think the connection that often we're missing is that our thoughts, and our emotions are the same type of molecular movement inside of our bodies. And that if we practice a focus um, in the way that emergent strategy encourages us to, there is a way to manifest external change individually and collectively as we organize. Um, And I think the most recent example for me, I follow Adrienne Marie Brown on Instagram, of course. And recently during the election, one of her posts when we were unsure about what was going to happen was a reminder to focus on broad and large margins. And so it was in that moment that I remembered, that's right, that's what I do. We can't focus on the anxiety of what if an outcome that we don't want. It is our responsibility to contribute energy towards the things that we do. And so I very much feel like that is something that's resonant throughout my life and in my work. 
Um, and most recently, I've been thinking a lot about, and we can, we'll probably dive into this in my philanthropic and grant-making practice and organizing practice of just encouraging us to dream because I believe in that power of intention and energy setting that I think so many of us have forgotten what it means to dream collectively. Some of us still know how to imagine what we want for our future. I don't know that we always can separate what we want from our future from some of the complex systems that we're trying to get rid of or that don't serve us. Um, but even developing the muscle for so many of us that are trying to manifest change, um, I also think about what it means to dream about sort of an abundant community and that it can't just be individual. Um, I always go back to the metaphor that Adrian talks about in the text uh, about mycelial networks and that while each individual network can dream for itself, can function for itself, we have to think about the connection to the rest of the world in the earth. Starting off with science right off the bat, it's perfect. Thank you so much. (laughs) 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 That is is so exciting and so important to me. Um, And how we look at those things that are taught in different sectors and understand them as I want to say metaphor, but actually they're deeper than just metaphors, right? They're actual. How do we how do we practice them in new and different ways, right? Things that, that have turned out to be true. Um, can you tell me about uh, about your journey towards emergent strategy? I know for me, I remember doing the uh, the session at Grantmakers of the Arts years ago, and thinking like on one hand, I was like, "Ooh, this is let's talk about emergent strategy with Grantmakers of the Arts. This is going to be cutting edge." And I remember asking folks in the audience. Uh, who in the room that day saying, how many people have read the book? And you immediately pulled it up. Like you had it with you in that moment. And so did like almost half the room. And I was like, oh, okay. So this is a thing that is happening that that is moving through it. And so let's not just let it uh, be as individuals reading it, but what does it mean to be in collective conversation? So can you tell me a little bit about what was your journey towards the, how did you find the book and, and what about it was resonant? What were you longing for when you found it? I spent most of my world, my life uh, with a recognition that I see the world fundamentally different than most people. I think And as a survival tactic, what I've done is to sort of, I did most of my young life was to obscure that, to hide that. So because um, I never really felt like I fit in anywhere, I always sought acceptance. And as a result of that, I think I hid my sort of innate understanding of the world um, being different than what the world says it is or it's supposed to be. I'm lucky enough that as I've gotten older and organized through my work that I've uh, connected with people like you and like Lila Tamari. I, I have found a pattern in my life that it has been women of color who have always been there to care for me and to guide me and to teach me and to push me. And Lila was the person that purchased Emergent Strategy for me. And she said, you may not be ready for this, but this is something I think you need to read. And I started reading it and I was like, nah, maybe not. Um, and it wasn't until six months later after she gave me the text that I really, I couldn't put it down. There was something about the timing of what my openness and my ability to receive it and to understand um, how it, it was a timely affirmation that I was stepping into a place where I no longer needed to seek um, agreement with others. I no longer needed to, to seek uh, to obscure my beliefs so that others would not think I was weird or that you know I was some weird social justice guy that didn't really understand the world. Um, 
and and that was how I came to it. Uh, after I read it, I knew innately that um, what the text was providing was in, not just an emotional and personal affirmation for me, but a resource that I could use to further amplify the organizing I was trying to do in my work, because I could point to a text that was published, that was reviewed, peer reviewed, um, and it gave me the foundation that I needed to, to organize others and bring them along the journey. Oh, I love that. I love, uh, first of all, shout out to Layla. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and I, I think that's such a trajectory that many folks who, who pick up a murder strategy at first sort of read it and maybe don't, or even if they feel like, oh, this is great, don't actually start to use it. Right, like it takes a little bit um, of of sitting with, feeling it out to be like, oh, this is the, this is how this can be useful. Can you talk a little bit more about um, like organizing it when you say organizing within the sector and and how you how you have used it? Like, what does that work been like? Um, at first, it was just talking about the book and sharing my feelings and sharing my thoughts and and the way that I was thinking about applying it in my work. Um, then, even though, as we both shared, folks are, tend to be hesitant in the beginning, I just started buying it for people um, and sending it and saying, when you're ready, try it. And once you read it, let's talk about it. And I felt like that sort of interpersonal connection was the first way that I could really figure out who could I organize with, who was really ready for this work that I wanted to do. But then I think more structurally, I implemented it when I moved from my previous role at Art Police America into CERDNA when I understood that an institution that called itself the Social Justice Foundation, that this text would allow me to push them further into their understanding of what real justice work could look like and needs to um, include and feel like. Um, and what we did was we wrote a 65 page strategy paper for our board at the Serdna Foundation as we were refining the strategy for thriving cultures. And the foundational text was immersion strategy. We bought a copy of the book for everyone on the board so that if they had questions about our citations or the connections that we were making, that they could go back to the entire text and understand its context. And even were able to use some of the um, other citations that Adrian has in the book. Um, along with our own research. We, uh, so just as an example, um, we ended up calling our strategy radical imagination for racial justice. We felt like that was an aspirational call to action that we could share. And the word radical ended up being a real sticking point for the uh, leadership at the foundation. And it wasn't until we found three researchers in Canada uh, that happened to be working at a university where one of our board members works that had done full analysis on the root definition of the word radical and that all it really means is to go to the root. Um, and so we were able to reinforce the sort of alignment with fractals and, and natural energy and earth. Mm -hmm. We were able to reinforce that what we were saying is we had to look at the world through systems and structures and understand what is at the base? What is it that we're feeding and not just say, well, these are brown leaves, we're gonna cut them off. Or, you know, this bud needs to grow, so we're gonna spritz a little water on it as a metaphor, which is what most of philanthropy in my humble opinion does. 
and that we really wanted to understand what is in the soil, what is the root structure of the work of the things that we care about. Um, and as a result, are we trying, and this is now the language that we've been using, are we using um, reformist reforms, which is just to sort of change the plant, which at, the, at its root is still fundamentally not serving or generating a community that we want? Or are we looking at abolitionist reforms that recognize sometimes the plant that we're trying to grow really isn't what we need? Mm -hmm. You know, and that sort of further uh, added to an argument that I've brought to philanthropy that this idea of the 5% of resources that we use, when you compare that with the 95% engine that is reinforcing the world that we're living in and the unjust systems, I didn't know that if we were using this little 5%, that trying to push against this 95% wall was ever going to be successful. And so connecting back or ever to- intended to be. Or ever intended to be, absolutely. So I go back to a sort of metaphor by another sort of organizer friend, facilitator of mine, Gibran Rivera, who I love and admire. Uh, we had worked together during my time in Boston and he'd created this image of, you know, the um, diminishing returns paradigm of limited resources that we live in. And adjacent to it, he drew an upwards arrow um, that was about sort of paradigms of abundance. And he said, many of us that are trying to intervene in these systems live in between, which is why, because we see the world so differently, we're called outcasts, we're called crazy folks. Um, those people over there that don't understand the world. And what I've been trying to drive in philanthropy is a recognition that we don't need to use these 5% to fight the paradigm. We need to extract the resources that we can in order to build the new world we want to live in, to seed the systems and structures and relationships that we know will continue to grow and eventually make these paradigms of diminishing returns obsolete because what's over here is so much more beautiful, attractive, um, satisfactory, joyful, uh, that it will be hard to avoid going to it and then having the rest of the world invest in what we're building. Uh, so that is really sort of the structure that we've used to organize within the foundation with other arts grant makers. Um, you know, we're about two years into the implementation of the strategy now, and we've started to learn about some of the really exciting stuff that's happening as a result of that theory and some of the ways that we still messed it up and uh, how do we need to continue to iterate uh, and just acknowledge those learnings as part of a growth process and that it's never about perfection. It's just about paying attention, listening and learning and continuing to adapt. What you're describing, a, a, a friend of mine, Alyssa Perry, who's uh, uh, one of the principals at Change Elemental talks about the strange attractor, which is another uh, science scientific theory of like how something becomes, that's like an offshoot, but over time the centrifugal force of that thing that seems like the odd thing out, um, the gravitational pull of it begins to siphon off um, resources and folks into the, that, that place of abundance that you're talking about, that Gibran talks about. And uh, um, I think it is really um, 
that's part of what organizing inside, particularly the art and culture sector that we live in. I think that that is really important. Um, and the way that you're describing it is doing it from, from looking at the root, because there is a way that that can sometimes look like, oh, let me run to the shiny thing. But mm -hmm. actually what happens is when you get there, you realize this ain't easy. <laughs> no, it's not. No, it is not. This work is hard. It is slow. It is circular. You know, I always reference with my friends. I believe in like therapeutic practice. I have my therapist. I, I live by him. I feel like it's like flossing. And I remind my friends when they feel like they fall into the trappings of old behavior or triggers, like healing and the world are not linear. Um, it's okay for us to move, feel like we've moved forward. We've learned a new lesson and then to realize that we still have, you know, we still fall into our old baggage and our old ways. Um, or we, as I mentioned earlier, we haven't learned to separate uh, the intention of our practice or align it rather. We haven't learned to align it with the world that we want because we're so used to setting intention based on the way the world tells us it should be. It's been, it's been tough. I have to admit that just this year as we were preparing a reflection for our board about the quote unquote progress we've made with our investments, I had a couple of weeks of like real deep anxiety of how do I make the case? How do I build the narrative to demonstrate that while we haven't generated the outputs or the things that we said we would in a year or two, that it's working, that what we're doing is working and we need to stay the course with some adaptation. Um, and recognize that there were parts of our hypothesis and our uh, intentions that really were lacking some assumption and understanding. Um, and I think the largest that we've recognized is the amount of healing that we all need to do personally and as communities uh, that can create space for abundance. That's beautiful. Can you talk, because it's so, it's so rare we think about healing inside this question of philanthropy, right? Like there, even in, in the, in this wave of equity and justice conversations are almost solely around this, around the question of amounts, wealth distribution. I like to say browning your portfolio, um, the ways in which, and, and think that that is actually um, um, moving, moving us, moving the, the world towards the world we really wanna live in. Um, but what that doesn't do is it doesn't shift power in any way. It doesn't even share power in any way. So I'm, I, I'm gonna ask you a little bit about this reformist reform to abolition reform. And what is that, what has that movement been like for you? Like what is the, what do you see as the distinction between the two and how are you living into, from one in, into the other? So I think this is challenging and honest, for example, an individual like myself can, as a translucent man of color, um, can enter into philanthropy thinking that I'm going to fix the system so that it operates in a better way for people of color. And that that kind of reform is what's gonna change the world. The reality is that without clarity of intention, that work of, as you say, browning the portfolio only reinforces the structures and systems that we live within currently of diminishing returns. And so I've had to recognize and come to the conclusion that philanthropy is itself an outgrowth of white supremacy and a reinforcing system of the diminishing returns of the capitalist systems we live in. Philanthropy would not need to exist if we didn't allow a capitalist system 
to give individuals the power to exploit land and people and amass so much wealth that they then get to benefit on their taxes by leveraging their influence and power again through the system of philanthropy. So the way in which my practice has shifted since I've arrived at CERDNA is to realize again, how do I extract from the diminishing returns in order to plant seeds to grow into abundance? Um, the strategy that we've developed is about trying to create opportunities for artists of color, BIPOC artists, uh, to imagine and practice with their community the world we want to build in some finite, ephemeral way. And to have an abundance of these experiments, these practices happening across the country in uncoordinated fashion. Some of them you know, may know of each other, some of them may not. Some of them may link before, after, or during their sort of experiments. Um, but the purpose here is to just really ideate forward because it's my belief that using our most recent example of the calls to abolish police, um, I always think about an adoption curve uh, in math and science. Um, you know, there, there's early, there's really the innovators, the early adopters phase, and then the rapid adoption that is what we need to get to. I believe that the calls for abolition have been happening uh, of the police have been happening for decades. There were innovators in the 60s and 70s that fundamentally understood that the police system was not for us and even before that, that it was an outgrowth of slavery. And it, it wasn't that until this most recent uprising that more people, we got into the early adopters phase, um, have begun to say, oh yes, I realize why this is important. It is my hypothesis that we haven't gotten to a rapid adoption phase because uh, most, and I'll be very specific in my humble opinion, white liberal individuals don't have the imagination to understand how to take practical data and believe that something different can exist on the other end. Again, because our ideas of safety are tied up in concepts of control of the other. And so what all that means to me is that our hope, our aspiration, our investments are investing in abolitionist ideas of if this thing, if our education system, our housing structure, our, our criminal justice system, our governance structure in, in government, cities, towns, states didn't exist what would we replace it with? And the classic example that I've used pointing to two individuals that have deeply shaped my worldview and my work, um, Kenny Bailey and Lori Lobenstein from the Design Studio for Social Intervention, who I've worked with for decades, was a project that they did in Boston called Public Kitchen, where you know it is their belief that we need to build our sort of public infrastructure and get away from this idea of like, Everything that we do needs to be this private thing that we do hidden away behind our closed doors and four walls. And that really we need to generate more community. So what would it look like if kitchens were not a private space, but they were in fact public infrastructure as a means of bringing people together? From my perspective, how I've extracted that into philanthropy is to say, well, we know our food system doesn't work because millions of people go hungry every, every day and every year, but millions of pounds of food go to waste every year and every day. You know, if these two things exist, why do we continue to accept them as the way the world should be? Um, because fundamentally, it's traditionally been white men, white cis men that get into a room and make these decisions. And then everyone just kind of goes along and believes that that's the way the world is. 
when these decisions can be changed. I think a lot about the complex formulas that the government uses to subsidize, subsidize dairy so that people can afford a gallon of milk. Well, fine, then we can create complex formulas and algorithms like we do for all of our technology that can place value in love and interdependence um, and making sure that everyone has the things that they need. How is that showing up in our strategy? Well, when we fund artists through our intermediaries, we require that 12% of any artist's project budget, which is typically sort of a no-no because you're, we're supposed to be providing general operating support, but we've just said, you know what, the term that we're using doesn't matter. 12% of every artist's budget needs to be about that human being, paying off debt, getting therapy, saving for retirement, taking a vacation so that we can build a restful practice so that we can be in this work for the long haul and not continue the culture of burning the candle at both ends. We do that at the organizational level and then again at the individual level. And the goal here is let's just create ideas so that the white liberal people that you know may not be able to imagine what's gonna happen to me when my car gets broken into or somebody you know mugs me um, they've had the data for decades to know that on average, consistently, a police officer, the Department of Justice publishes this data every year. On average, a police officer spends less than 5% of their time responding to violent crimes. Well, then we don't need a police officer with a gun and a baton and a shield showing up for other things that happen in society. There are so many other people that are trained in conflict resolution or de-escalation um, recognizing that so many of us are, whether we're high functioning like you and me or not, struggle with mental health and emotional issues and need some kind of support and community to feel, to figure out how do we um, show up as our best selves and not allow our trauma to drive our behaviors, our actions, our thoughts. The final piece I'll share is, you know, we want all of these prototypes in the first year or two all of these brilliant ideas about how to abolish the police or abolish the education system um, as opposed to tinkering with it and thinking that we can just make it work better. And what we got in the first year stage, I would say 90% of what was uh, proposed by artists in BIPOC communities were racial healing projects, were about the recognition that there's too much trauma for us to be able to take a step into real abundant imagination. And that if we wanna get there, we need to deepen our relationships, we need to deepen our sort of personal healing practices and really build this community around an idea of whole healthy people. Um, you know, I think in a, and I'll admit, even in my traditional white supremacist ways that I try to push aside and I work against on a daily basis, I was like, well, damn, no, we've done something wrong. People don't understand what we mean. When in actuality, it's not that people don't understand what we mean. I had to look at myself and say, no, this is a call and response. The response, you called and the world responded with, yes, and this is the way that that, will be, that work will begin. So that sort of reflection of, of my own work and my own like, impulse to be like, no, I need to control this thing, or I need to make sure that it looks perfect for the board. I had to, and we wrote a really beautiful six-page memo to the board about what we missed and the beautiful response that we received from community and how we were going to honor that response in order to continue moving towards our ideal vision.
down the barbed wire fence, electrified gate control. Well, thank you for sharing that. And it just reminds me about the ways in which uh, there's sometimes a tension inside organizing and cultural work, like in cultural organizing, that's specifically around time, specifically around like how we think about what is won and lost in sort of an organizing framework that we often use, like what is, um, and how cultures is, often has a longer view, which isn't when you have uh, other stakeholders that are, are, that you are accountable to and that are looking towards you, are like, yeah, in 10 years, you won't believe what this has done, <laughs> you know, and they're like, ooh, and how do you bring folks along to the understanding that, um, you, what you are addressing is decades, centuries in according uh, to Octavia Butler uh, in the Geno, Xenogenesis series, like embedded in core humanities, we are intelligent and hierarchical. Um, and that that's one of the things the aliens are like, that's why you all keep destroying yourselves. And so there's like some core things that, that you're in the process of undoing and that doesn't happen in a grant cycle. It doesn't, it doesn't and it won't. And how are folks prepared to invest over time with the understanding that you can't, right? Like these, these uh, systems, of, systems of oppression, white supremacy, heteropatriarchy, that one of the things that they do is they make us ahistorical and they truncate our imagination, right? So you, you feel like what you're living in is all that ever was. And that's just not true. <laughs> like it's never been true. Right. It's just not true at all. That's right, that's right. Yeah, I referenced in the memo, I actually, or two memos ago to the board, um, I mentioned the idea that uh, Adrian puts out in the book. Uh, and I don't know, she credits somebody else, and it might actually be Kenny from DS4SI uh, that she credits in the book for saying, you know, there was a time in the world where everybody believed that kings and queens were the only kind of organizing government that we could have. And centuries later, you know, there are very there are fewer monarchies than there are quote unquote democracies. Um, and that, you know, those transitions, those very large cultural and structural transitions happen, but they don't happen in a single lifetime. They don't happen in a grand cycle. They don't happen in six to nine months. It's just not the way that these things take place. And we have to, I think, get better at, um, to quote Maria Rosario Jackson, um, being able to recognize the indications of growth and change um, that may not be concrete or number-based. It's about even, and I talk about this a lot, it's one of the ways in which I feel like I'm very different and, and usually an outsider in philanthropy. I'm not an academic person. I don't have a graduate degree. Um, I have believed my entire life in developing an emotional and intu an intuition rigor that I think is essential to our life practice. Um, but that's not always recognized or valued in the circles that we move in, uh, fundamentally understanding how do you listen to the world and what it's telling you. Sounds like that is also uh, landing you in good stead as you put something out in the world and the world responded somewhat differently than you had intended. Yeah. How do you begin your iteration in that moment? Uh, I, uh, acknowledging my own opportunities for growth. I'm a control freak, I'm a type A personality. I, you know, I always want to control perception or sound or shape, experience. And some of that I think can be really good and beautiful. Like my dream is to, like I, my first career was managing nightclubs between Philadelphia and New York City. 
Um, and my dream, my retirement plan is to be able to make enough money and hopefully be able to throw a deuce to philanthropy and open up a very community-based live music and DJ set space that serves good food and like knowing my neighbors and, you know, in my dream, it's being able to serve brunch on Sundays, but it's only if you're like a resident in a particular um, geographic uh, sort of scope so that we really have a practice of coming together. Um, and I think that kind of curation that's collaborative can be really beautiful um, and useful. The way that it shows up sometimes is the first thing I do is I panic and my anxiety rises and I'm just like, okay, I need to this work to go forward. How do I shape the message in a way um, that will sound good to these people? And then, you know, I often have conversation with my confidants and my colleagues and they're like, but wait, that idea of control and manipulation almost ends up being a lack of honesty and transparency and your practice is rooted in honesty. And as Adrian talks about in, in, in the emergent strategy, if you don't give trust, how do you expect it? Mm. it? It was through that process of realizing my reaction is one of the systems of diminishing returns and that things have to fit a certain framework in order to be accepted, invested in, and supported by these systems, as opposed to believing, no, I'm on my right path. And honesty is the example I want to give because it allows, if I'm vulnerable, it allows others to admit when their assumptions are faulty. It allows others to recognize the power in listening to your community when you offer a convocation um, and not assuming that your ideal vision or convocation is going to necessarily look, feel, and sound or taste like what it does to you, to your community. But our responsibility is to be in community and to be willing to accept that response and then figure out how do we then return the call that the, that the community has asked for from us. Um, so it's, it's a bit of a hurried process and I still go through my anxiety and my panic and my desire to control before I'm getting better at, getting, at being able to just say, you know what, there's nothing to be ashamed of. You know, uh, Lori Lobenstein talks about the fear, shame, rage cycle, um, and that there's so much about our culture that is uh, about shaming each other and shaming the other, and that we then learn how to rage as a response because we feel so shamed that we rage either against the person that's bringing us that shame or against somebody else. And that brings me back to a conversation I recently had with another uh, amazing woman of color that I organized with who reminded me that uh, Bell Hooks set forth the framework that black men and white women in our society often have similar shame rage reactions because they are both oppressed by white men and have the ability to oppress black women. And this idea, just using that as an example, that uh, we create solidarity or we create relationships and we create reactions, responses, and, and do work uh, based on when we feel ashamed of our natural way of being. And I am getting better at choosing not to be shameful, to really trust. Um, and I think that's an essential part of this practice in order to more consistently be able to show up for community when they tell us, they tell me what they want. Oh, I love that. I love that shame is entering our conversation because I think that it shows up so many ways. Sometimes we think about it as, what happens in our individual response, but it is so connected to what it means around our relationship to community and how, what we can or cannot do because we are, are held too tight by shame. 
So in, in the same way that you are, are, are talking about your own uh, work as, as a program director and how the shame showed up in you, that's, that's so much, it sounds like, of what the BIPOC artists and the artists of color that you've been supporting are, are talking about the healing of communities um, and the healing necessary in order to be able to see more. The shame makes you smaller, right? And to see more and believe that more is possible. I've had experiences uh, where uh, folks, even with access to resources, didn't access them, didn't use it because they felt like, I don't, I don't know enough. I don't have, you know, all the things that we're quote unquote told we don't have in relationship to the way white supremacist culture frames success, knowledge, uh, um, uh, uh, skill, and how do we begin to open up a new conversation about that? How are you working with um, intermediaries? I find that interesting, like the, the layers of the work. And is there anything you can share about how emergent strategy has supported the, can you describe the layers? Because I know them, but other people listening might not. And, and um, how emergency has helped you run structurally in this process. Right? Mm -hmm. I've thought a lot about the many flaws that philanthropy has. Um, so there are different ways to do grant making. In my previous organization, uh, we were an intermediary that uh, pulled together found, you know, the resources from 16 foundations at Art Place America. Um, and then we were empowered to create to design a process that then distributed those resources. Before I arrived at ArtPlace, it's my understanding that it was a really sort of powerful few that made determinations about who applied and where that money went. My first understanding was, I don't know where this money should go. I know the values with which I would like these uh, resources distributed, and I can create a container for those values to be centered and I needed to decenter myself from the decision-making process. So what we immediately did was to create a, a sort of public review process. People from all over the country, um, from rural, small towns, big cities, but really privileging different worldviews and people who didn't necessarily fit into the philanthropic traditional box of like what is community de development and what is quote unquote arts and culture. That kind of democratization, I learned a lot from it um, and recognizing the value of heterogeneity and of curating heterogeneity so that we're not in our little bubbles, echo chambers that tell us what we want to hear. So when I transferred over to CERDNA, I quickly realized that this system in particular isn't ready for democratized grant making. They're not ready for us to bring in community to make these grant making decisions or recommendation. So I had to find another way to carry forward that value and figure out how I could decentralize myself and the staff and the board as possible, as much as possible, from ultimately deciding who got the dollars. Because we don't know. I work in an ivory tower in one of the quote unquote most wealthy cities in the country in New York. And you know, just to be frank, I'm really clear, we don't know shit. Uh, so with that in mind, the first thing that I did once this, the academic framework of the strategy was approved by the board is that we took another year to be in conversation with about 50 organizations and people. We gave everybody a bunch of money to say, here's what we're thinking. How should we be implementing this? And who wants to be in relationship with us as we do it? From that emerged 11 organizations that we selected and ultimately determined, had demonstrated an alignment of values 
um, even if we didn't agree on implementation, but our values are aligned and that they had sufficient relationship with individuals and communities that we cared about. So we could trust their processes. We could trust their ability to work with community and create community processes to determine how those resources would be distributed. And that's what we did. We tried to attend to the rural urban divide. We tried to attend to ethnic and racial divisions and communities that come together around those identities. Um, we've tried to acknowledge the marginalized of the marginalized, those that are usually the most in tune and in alignment with the world and because they're labeled the crazy ones are ostracized and tried to figure out how do we center them and their knowledge and their leadership in these conversations. And I'll be more specific, thinking about trans, gender nonconforming, black and indigenous and female leadership um, that has been disinvested and that has been marginalized for far too long. So those were the goals that we set out. We selected 11 organizations and we gave them each one more than a million dollars to take three years and figure out how they were gonna fund artists to prototype. One of the things that was important to us is because we were trying to center these quote unquote marginalized voices is that the scale of investment was important. It is typical, you know, in marginalized communities to be like, here's 500, here's a thousand, here's even $5,000 as a stretch. When you think about sort of the institutions of creative capital or USA artists or MacArthur Genius Awards, they give these huge scale investments with like no strings attached to individuals that, you know, have demonstrated some level of value in mainstream culture. And we wanted to try and create a similar scale. So we said, awards can't be less than $25,000. We really want somebody, even if the event is like one day, like, I don't know, can I cuss on this podcast? You can, absolutely. I'm like, fuck it up, make mistakes, have fun, pay yourself, pay your friends, um, and then come back and tell us what you learned. And we wanna throw more money at the next thing that you wanna do. And so that was really, I think, a lot about the idea of just trusting the process and trusting Black, female, trans, gender nonconforming leadership to do what is right for them and for their communities, for our communities, even if we didn't understand it, even if it didn't take the, the quote unquote shape that would make sense to other people. Um, and creating that distance was really, really important. That's the way that we've tried to create these interconnected layers. And then we do a series of annual gatherings. You know, now in the time of COVID, we'd have to, we've had to do them virtually to think about how do we provide resources that are useful to us? You know, one of the most recent ones is, again, going back to the Design Studio for Social Intervention and their latest book of Ideas, Arrangements, and Effects, of trying to find language that is more accessible to everyday humans that you know, we don't need to exalt the written word. We don't need to exalt published research. We really already have the knowledge that we uh, need, and we just need to figure out how to apply it. And I really appreciate the way that this text simplifies the idea of intervening in systems and structures to its most basic and honest essence. So that's the way that we've done it. Some of it's worked, some of it hasn't, but we're still, you know, iterating and learning forward and and my hope is that we'll continue to get better at that practice this is for shetty all dedicate this with a heavy heart
I, I believe that it, there's no other option, right? If you're, if you're actually uh, uh, taking in the learning, then you are going to get better at the practice. As capitalism falls, because I, I am firmly in the camp that cap, we are in late stage capitalism, it is crumbling, it is a self uh, a self eating uh, system. It, it eats its own self, it will, it will die. Will there be a role for philanthropy after that? Or is, is philanthropy only, uh, um, can it only exist as long as capitalist, capitalism exists? Will it be? I think its current structure will eat itself, yes. I agree because it is an outgrowth of capitalism. I think the idea of philanthropy, the original concept of beloved community and connecting and sharing, um, which is the value behind, I think, what philanthropy has become, will persist. I think that that, in fact, is the new economic system that we will are, are moving into, will, and I'm leaning into, this idea of recognizing what I do is not valuable than what anyone else does. Um, that's a first thing for me. Uh, you know, a second thing is because what I do is not more valuable than what anyone else does and the role that we each play, then that means that if what I do is curate dinner parties and what you do is clean up or what you do is curate music, then we're gonna exchange. I'm gonna share the food that I make with you, the space that I make with, for my friends with you and as part of the community, and you're gonna share your music with me. And we are fundamentally going to understand that there is shared value in everything that we bring. And so my belief wholeheartedly is no, I, philanthropy as a system will die with capitalism. It needs to, and it will eat itself in the way that it currently exists. I think there are some values um, that will carry forward. Those values and the way the system currently operates, I think are obscured, obfuscated. And it's usually the smaller social justice funds that are actually living into that value. Um, and so I, I really like that even when, you know, the social justice funds only have $250 or $500 to give, the fact that they're paying attention and growing and spending that energy at a very local scale is, uh, again, living into emergent strategy and realizing the power of the ripple uh, to grow and to permeate beyond their perhaps small practice. That is a beautiful last uh, thought. I can't tell you how much I've appreciated this conversation. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate knowing that that you are in this world thinking about these things. It, it Finding our folks is what allows us to keep imagining forward. Right? Like, and so thank you for this time. I'll say to you, as I've said to the few others that are part of my like core network of you know people that I really look to to understand, um, thank you for showing me who you are and thank you for seeing me. Um, I think that the power of of being and feeling seen is huge. Um, and that's a gift that you give me every time we share space. So thank you, Sage. This podcast is produced by Natalie Pert. Music for the Emergent Strategy podcast is provided by Complex Movements, a Detroit-based artist collective. The music provided is from the soundtrack of the performance installation Beware of the Dandelions. 
To support the ongoing work of ESII, make a donation at www.alliedmedia.org forward slash ESII.